Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17 is where we find ourselves this morning, having for the last several weeks now been tracking through the course of the prophets as we've covered one major prophet already and several minor prophets, but We've settled into Jeremiah over this last couple of weeks, really, as it's quite a large book. And uh, if you're not tracking along in the Bible reading, that's just fine. But uh, Jeremiah chapter 17 is where we're at this morning. We'll also turn to chapter 31 just a little later on in our time together. But one of the questions which continues to resurface as we've been tracking through the prophets and we've come to this point in time in the history of the people of God and the people of Israel as they have continuously rebelled against God's law. As God has given revelation of himself, given clear indication on how he is to be worshipped and praised and followed. And the people have continuously pursued their own desires time and time and time again. And God has graciously maintained covenant faithfulness with them despite their continued covenant rebellion. And so now we've entered this time and God is sending prophet after prophet to tell them. And he's preparing to send them into exile at the hands of pagan foreign nations. Yet the people remain obstinate. They remain self-righteous, proud, unwilling to repent. So one of the questions that resurfaces as we move through this time in the life of the people of Israel, and as we read through the Old Testament, particularly in a chronological reading of the Old Testament, is that of our justification. What justifies us before a just and holy God? who has graciously revealed himself, made himself known, and in that revelation of himself has given us insight that we stand before him as perpetually unjustified sinners. Of course, another question which this might bring up is, what is justification, right? So justification is that which makes us righteous or in good standing, that is not guilty, before God. Now, the temptation may be, as it was for Israel, to say that, well, what justifies us is the same law against which we have trespassed. That is to say that what justifies us is our ability to uphold the law. That is to say we are continually tempted to look at our own justification based on the standard of the law. What justifies me? This is, this is what that looks like. To think, to think like that, to think that the standard, living up to the standard of the law justifies us sounds like this. Well, I've been coming to church for some time ever since I was a little kid. And I, I try to do my best to uphold the Ten Commandments. I, I try to make sure that I give when I'm at church. I try to serve here and there. I do what I can, right? I know about Jesus and really, I just, I just do the best that I can to be a good person, right? Does any of that sound familiar? And maybe, maybe you've heard these justifications before. Maybe you've made these justifications before. Or even consider the adverse side of that, right? Many people, whether they realize it or not, relate their unjust standing 
against the same standard, against the law, right? That is to say that they would view themselves in this way. It would sound like this. What could I possibly do to be saved? Why would God save me? I've done too much bad in my life. So did you catch how that's adverse to the other side of that, right? Is this person, rather than believing that they should be saved, or are saved because of how well they've done, they believe that they are beyond saving because of how poorly they've done in life. Both positions of bad and good are based on what? The standard of the law. So many self-proclaimed Christians and some non-believers alike will go through their entire lives without ever truly grasping the relationship between Jesus the law, grace, and our justification. And what I want us to see this morning is the overwhelming truth of Christ's perfect fulfillment of the law, his securing of our justification, and our response to this great grace. So if you'll please stand with me once again in honor of the reading of God's word as we read our text for today, which comes from Jeremiah 17. Verses 1 through 10. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their Asherim beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know, for in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it, is not, it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This is the word of God. God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word this morning, we ask that you would just bless the reading of your word, that you would enlighten the understanding of our hearts, open our minds to clearly see your truth and to understand how you have accomplished all of this in Christ and made it available to us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So last week, uh, obviously I was not in the pulpit, I was here, but it was nice to be able to sit back and just listen to Brother Joe preach for the first time in a long time. He did an excellent job breaking down the call of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter one and encouraging us to boldly obey that which God has called us to do no matter the circumstances of the surrounding culture. 
And I want to piggyback off of that a bit and point out a few things about the plainness of Jeremiah's message. What's beautiful about the call of Jeremiah is the humility with which he responds to God's call. He's a simple priest in the land of Benjamin of no lofty descent or line, yet God tells him that he has foreknown and indeed created Jeremiah for the very purpose of being his prophet to the nations. Now, that's humbling for us to consider. And it's even humbling for us to consider this, that God in his sovereignty declared Jeremiah a prophet from the womb because he foreknew the sins of his people and foreknew the message which he would send Jeremiah to preach. So consider with me the simplicity of God's message through Jeremiah. What is it that God repeatedly tells Jeremiah to go and preach before the people? His word, the law. Turn back to chapter 7 here of Jeremiah. In chapter 7, we see after Jeremiah has delivered his initial message, we, see, we read this in chapter 7, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house, so this is what God is telling him to do, and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place. So what God is saying here is essentially he's telling Jeremiah to go and preach to the people, repent. So he's showing grace. He's calling them back to himself. But what's the standard which he is calling the people to return to? Do according to my law. Don't trust in your arrogance and entitlement. That's what he said. Their message was the temple of the Lord. We can't possibly succumb to these surrounding nations that are coming against us. We're not, there's no exile going to happen. We have the temple. The Lord is on our side. We're the people of God. All the while, their lives display none of that. No covenant faithfulness. No acknowledgement of God through the way they live their lives. In fact, it's the exact opposite. But God's message to Jeremiah is, go and tell them, return to me. Return to the law. Now, contrast that with the falsely self-proclaimed prophets of today. And you get a very different picture. In fact, Jeremiah tells the people later on to judge their false prophets based off the word of God. And we would do well to do the same. But jump forward to chapter 11. We see again this message which God tells Jeremiah is not lofty or of great verbose language, but it's simply repent and return to the law. Do good. Do justice to the sojourner. Well, where do we learn the standard of justice? God's law. And again, we see chapter 11, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So he's told to go and deliver another word. Hear the words of this covenant. 
and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do all that I commanded you. So he, he goes all the way back to the time of Moses. And he says, Look, simply return to my covenant. I made a covenant with you to be my people and to distribute and show my glory amongst all the nations. And from, from the time of your fathers, you've rebelled against my covenant. And he says, return to it. Pick back up. Verse 4, that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, listen to my voice and do all that I commanded you, so shall you be my people and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as at this day. And Jeremiah answers, so be it, Lord. And the Lord said to me, Jeremiah says, continue, verse 6, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet, Verse 8, they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. And you'll see this theme throughout Jeremiah, this idea of the evilness of the human heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. So God says, I remained faithful to the covenant. I continued to show grace and covenant faithfulness. And my people, the ones who I brought up out of Egypt with my own hand for the very purpose of worshiping and glorifying me among the nations, they did not obey. And so just like I told your fathers, I'm telling you now, obey my voice. And what did we read there at the end of Jeremiah's message? They did not. Before we can talk about justification in relation to grace and the law, we must know the standard which the law holds us to. Some think that the law is devoid of grace, but the law is itself an act of grace, which reveals our complete dependence on God's grace. I enjoy playing chess. I particularly enjoy playing chess with my middle brother who's here this morning. I enjoy playing chess. Typically how our games go is I beat him the first game and then he proceeds to just demolish me every game after that, right? Because usually it takes him a game to get, you know, kind of back in the swing of things, but he's just that good. And it was always, it's always, typically almost always how it goes for us. Now imagine if you sat down to play chess, not knowing any of the rules, and you sat down to play chess against someone who knows the rules. And what are they constantly going to have to be telling you? Eh, can't do that. Eh, nope, you can't move like that. No, the game's going to take forever. And you're going to be frustrated. Well, God has not only given us the rules plainly and clearly stated, he's given us the strategy to win, which is stick to what I say. And I want to see this. The first thing 
there on your outline this morning. Hopefully you grabbed an outline on the way in. It's there on the back of the ministry card. First point on your outline this morning. The law of God requires perfect obedience. That's the standard of the law. If there is one thing that we see throughout Scripture, it's that this standard does not waver. God's law does not assume, but commands perfect obedience. And now, that should be terrifying. You should be sitting there saying like, well, geez, count me out, right? Because none of us can perfectly obey God's law. But that's exactly the point. That is what is constantly revealed in Israel and Judah at this point as the kingdom is split into two. As the people of God, where were it not for God showing steadfast love and mercy, the covenant would have been broken from the start. The very first time God would have had to say, I can't do that. The covenant's broken. But God maintains covenant faithfulness, showing grace from generation to generation. So there's some sort of barrier here that has to be overcome. Because why, otherwise, why, why wouldn't the people of God obey the word of God? If they know that it, it, it leads to true life. There's a barrier here that has to be overcome. What is it? Well, Jeremiah addresses that here in the first three verses of our text this morning, turning us back to chapter 17, picking back up again in verse 1 as we read earlier. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. So the, uh, the, the imagery here is not soft. It's not just like lightly inscribed, right? But it is inscribed hard with a pin of iron, with a point of diamond. It has to have the point of the hardest material on earth engraved on the what? Not some tablet that is being brought down from a mountain to be declared. This sin is engraved where? On the tablet of their heart. There it is again. And on the horns of their altars. So it's, it's not just in the heart. But it's, it's in their worship, the horns of the altars. That's, that's in, you know, drawing our minds and our imagery there to where God was worshipped, where sacrifice was made, right? Where their sin is not just on their heart, it's spread everywhere. While their children remember their altars and their Asherim. So what do their children remember? It's not the law of the Lord that we see in Deuteronomy 6, right? They shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Teach this to your children. What do their children remember? Their altars and their Asherim, their pagan idols. Beside every green tree and on the high hills, it's written everywhere in the land, on the mountains, in the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. So the sin, it starts in the heart and it's spread now everywhere originating from their heart of stone and permeating throughout into every facet of their life. Their sin is spread everywhere. Understand this is the complete opposite of how God has called his people to live. From the onset, God tells his people, this law that I give you today is to be written on your hearts. 
But here's the problem. Here is why men will look at the law of God and scoff. Here is why our understanding of the law is darkened. Here's why we look at the law and we see a list of rules and just an overbearing God who would have us do things his way. Here's why that's our natural inclination to the law. The law of man is engraved on our hearts. So in the place of the written law of God is etched on our stony hearts our own law. So when we subvert the law of God with our own law, what we really have is lawlessness. I've already noted what we see in Deuteronomy 6. This law to give you today is be written on your hearts. We also see this in Proverbs 3. So this is a continued theme throughout all of Scripture that God's law is to be what is written on our hearts. We see this in Proverbs 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. We see this in Proverbs 7. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. So that's what it means to have wisdom is to treasure the word of God, the commandments of God. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. Why can't you or I follow God's law? If we've been told, if the holy God of heaven, creator of heaven and earth, has given revelation of himself and told us what it means to have true life, why are we so incapable of following that? And the answer, whether we want to admit it or not, is we don't want to. Because we've superseded his law with our own law written in its place. The law of man is pride. It's self-absorption, greed, envy, all manner of things which we use to justify our own selfish actions. And this is the message that Jeremiah wants to get across to the people. This is the message that God wants to communicate to his people through Jeremiah. And this, church, is the message of the gospel. That we are all lost in the sinfulness of our lawless, stony hearts. And we see this as we keep reading. Pick back up for our text today in verse 4. You shall loosen your hand from the heritage that I gave to you. And I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. So not only does God's law give us the standard of what is good and right and true, but it also tells us that the ones who stand against what is good and right and true will have to succumb to his judgment. And God warns, he says this in verse 5, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So God says, judgment is finally coming. You've broken my covenant time after time after time. You've deserved judgment this whole time, but I have shown grace upon grace and pointed you back to the law time and time again. So guess what? This heritage, this privilege, you say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, there's nothing that can come against us. I'm going to loosen 
your fingers from it. It's gone. This is what it looks like to follow your own law. A dried up shrub in the desert that just has to sit there with no hope of rain. So understand this, church. The law of man is only sin and death. That is the equivalent, the sum total of all that can be accomplished through the law that is written on our hearts. The law of man requires nothing but perpetual self-gratification. And this is exactly why it only leads to death. The law of man says that the, the greatest good in the universe is to achieve a temporary happiness which will leave you constantly thirsty for more. Because the stream that it's planted beside was never a stream to begin with, but a wasteland of empty promises, half-truths, and unending searches for meaning. What kind of life is that? The life of a dried-up shrub. That's the sum total of the law of man. We also see this there in those verses, that to follow the law of man is to turn away from the Lord. That that is where you stand if you follow the law of man. You stand with your back on the creator of the universe. So here's the gospel truth. All of us are or have been guilty of this. If you have not submitted to the work of Christ on the cross and placed all your faith in him, you're still that dry shrub. And guess what? All of us who used to be dry shrubs will tell you that all too frequently we still find parts of our heart that are hardened and have sin engraved on them. And we are in constant need of having to repent and return and give that back over and be reminded of this same truth. And so I know all of you are saying, like, man, this is a super hopeful message right now, right? Like, so you're, you're asking, where's the hope? Verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He, so we have this, this polar opposites here. We have a polarity here. We have the dry shrub, and that's the one who trusts in man. But here's the one who trusts in the Lord. Verse 8, he is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So it's always harvest time at this tree. So you've got the dry shrub out in the desert, and then you've got this tree that's planted beside a healthy, flowing, ever-flowing stream, and those roots are growing deep and constantly drawing in life and nutrients. So it grows its roots even deeper into that stream, and it's constantly drinking from it. So even when drought and heat come, like it's got everything it needs. Why? Because it's by the stream. So here's what I want you to see is the, the law of God is life. That's, that's what's being depicted here. You have death and a dried up shrub in the desert, or you have an evergreen tree that's constantly producing fruit. It's always harvest time at this tree. So you see that the law of man is only sin and death, the dried up shrub, and you see the law of God is life. 
So why don't we follow it? That question still looms, right? What's the barrier? We don't follow it because we can't. To follow God's law and to grow deep roots into its life-giving streams, we must fully submit to Him as Lord. And that's something that our stony hearts just are not willing to do. But this is the point. The law reveals this about us. The law is what shines a magnifying glass, just a, a bright spotlight to say, hey, this is what's wrong with you. And it shines that bright light of truth on our darkened hearts and says, you don't want me. And continue reading. We see what that barrier is in verse 9. Why wouldn't we want to plant our roots beside a stream that is always flowing? Why wouldn't we want to constantly be producing fruit? Who's going to choose to be a shrub in the desert? We would. And this is why. Verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So then, still, the question remains. Now we know why. It's because we follow our hearts that have sin. I have our own law engraved on them. What does Disney say? Dream is a wish your heart makes. Follow your dreams. That's what the world wants to say. Follow your heart. Do what seems right to you. All the while, we're being deceived, ultimately, time and time again, desperately sick. It's like choosing to be sick, to follow the heart. So now a new question looms. Right? We've answered the question of why we wouldn't follow the law of God, but now a new question is there. How do I get to this stream? How can I let my roots grow deep? I don't want to be a shrub. I can't get there on my own is the reality. I can't get there by following my heart. And the Lord continues to tell Jeremiah to simply preach the law, preach the word. He continues to do just what we've seen. Like, Go and stand in the gate. Tell them. Like, he doesn't give them some special revelation. That's not what he tells Jeremiah. He says, Go, go tell them, follow my covenant. But they did not do it. And the Lord continues to tell Jeremiah, just preach the word. Tell the people that their salvation and their hope is not found in a building, but in a heart that is found in me. Don't trust in the temple. Do the word. And then you skip down there to verse 19. You see, thus said the Lord to me, go stand in the people's gate. So this most populous gate, right? You got people just flowing in and out through this gate. And he tells Jeremiah to go stand there. By which the kings of Judah enter and by which they go out and in all the gates of Jerusalem and say, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. Thus says the Lord. Take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day. Bring it in the gates of Jerusalem. So you want to know how to take care of your lives? Like return to the Lord. Don't do his word and do not carry a burden of your own house. You're carrying this burden. Yet they did not listen, verse 23, or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not 
hear and receive instruction. This is the response of man to the Word of God. We stiffen our necks. So we still have that question, right? So then how do I get to that strength? How does, my, how does my stiffened neck become loosened? Well, we know man can't keep the law of God on our own. So what will come if God brings down the sacrificial system? Because that's what God is saying here. Like, look, I'm bringing down the sacrificial system because of the sinfulness of your hearts. So how can man be made right with God to follow his law and glorify him? And the answer is we need a new heart. Well, how do we get that? Jump to chapter 31, rather. Because this is where God explicitly lays out how man can't achieve a new heart on his own. So God says, I am doing it for you. Chapter 31 of Jeremiah, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So that right there, groundbreaking, right? I mean, like between now and then, like Jeremiah has been persecuted, he's been chased out, and he's soon after this message to be thrown into a cistern. He's been beaten for what? For preaching the word and telling the people to repent and return to the law of God. And now this is probably the most scandalous thing that he says to them of all. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So this new law, the first law, was written on tablets. They were brought down. And in fact, the first set of those tablets had to be shattered because of the anger of sin. That's where the first law was written. This new law will directly be written on their hearts in this new covenant. So how do we, how do we find that stream? How do we plant those roots down deep so that we are constantly bearing fruit We have to have a new heart. I need to get rid of this deceitfully wicked, stony heart with which the law, my own law, is engraved on. And I need to exchange it for a regenerated heart. Well, who can do this for me? Because God is the one that says he is the one that is doing this. The final point there on your outline. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the law and our perfect redeemer. In Christ, the law is kept perfectly. In Christ, our debt has been paid completely. So Christ came not to abolish the law and prophets, so he said himself, but to fulfill them where we could not. So now all those who are found in him, not having a heart of stone, but rather a regenerate heart of flesh, 
that has been made new, we have the righteousness of Christ imparted to us. And what did we do to deserve it? Nothing. So the justification is not based on anything that we can do because the only way that we can justify ourselves is to justify that we are guilty before God. So how does Christ justify us? Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Paul breaks it down for the church at Rome, just breaking down these exact ideas that we've been wrestling with and seeing here and thinking about. So he's talking about that in Adam, our first father, right, we see sin enter the world through Adam. But now in Christ, we have life. And this is where we see that. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass, that's the sin of Adam, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now see where Paul's going here. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see that, church? That the law revealed the sinfulness of our hearts. And so where sin increased because of the standard of the law, grace increased ever more as now down the line comes Christ, the one who, the only one who can truly keep the law and pay the price necessary to do away with our sinfulness, leaving us justified before a just and holy God. Peter Breaks it down like this in 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll just read it for you. You can make a note of it if you want to reference it later. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Because here's the question that we now have. Well, then what was the point of the law? And how do I respond to the law now in Christ? Is the Old Testament still useful? So, this, for to this you have been called. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. So here's our example from Christ. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Did you catch that? He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin so that we might follow his example and dying to our old way of life, killing that stony heart and living how? Live to righteousness. 
So how do we worship God? We now seek to live out the law, to uphold the law through the power of the Holy Spirit work at work and in us, given the example of our big brother Christ. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So in Christ, seeking to do the works of the law is no longer a means of restoration for us, but rather seeking to do the works of the law, seeking to uphold the law, is the response of a heart that has been regenerated from death to life. If the chief end of man is to glorify God, and it is, then the question that we must ask is why would man not glorify God? And the answer that we've come to, the answer that we know to be true, the answer which we can see in and of ourselves and in the lives of those around us and which is plainly revealed in Scripture is that we don't want to. It's not that we don't want to glorify. It's that we don't want to glorify anybody but ourselves. So the question before us and all mankind is not whether or not God will be glorified by your life, but rather will he be glorified in your life? Because whether or not he's glorified in your life, he will be glorified. And so the response of sinful man is to repent Believe in the gospel, and in this you can be saved. And for those that are saved, let us stop striving to justify ourselves by upholding the law and piling up good works, but rather let us submit to the work of Christ on the cross and uphold the law in worship. And for those who have not submitted to the work of Christ on the cross, your justification cannot be accomplished by any amount of good deeds. Nor do you stand permanently unjustified because of all that you've done wrong. But what stands before you is life. And the only way that you can receive that is by not anything that you can actually do, but simply by submitting to the work of Christ on the cross, believing in him, and in that you can be saved. 